Hi, it's Arjun with a video update this week. Wanted to provide some commentary on really my last two notes, volatility, not Vienna, which kind of questioned why we're spending so much time obsessing about OPEC. And then the one last week, which talked about kind of trading noise, the focus on the front end of the curve and whether we have inventory bills and draws, when really the real action should be happening at the back end of the curve. That is going to be the key to whether we have an oil super cycle or not. And let me just get into the video. I have a bunch of slides. Hopefully I can go through it very quickly. These slides are available both on my Substack, arjunmurdy.substack.com, and I think we'll make sure they're available through Veritin as well. So the first point we'd make is all this focus on inventories, which you're really arguing about, is the front of the, of the curve. If we have inventory draws, we're going to go to backwardation, which means spot prices are above long-end prices, long-dated prices. If inventories build, the opposite is true. Spot is below the back end of the curve. And that's what you're arguing when you argue inventories. For everyone who says second half of 2023 because of the OPEC cuts or some supply disappointment, we're going to have inventory draws. All you're arguing is sort of backwardation versus contango, the front end of the curve. Don't get me wrong. It might be bullish for the sector. If we've been in a period where prices have been lackluster, the spot price rallying as the market goes back from a slight contango to a backwardation can very certainly be bullish. But it's a trading call. It is ultimately noise. It is actually not what interests me at the end of the day. The real action, the real key to do we have a super cycle is at the long end of the oil curve. And what drives that? It is going to be in on the one hand, are we seeing signs of basin maturity? In this case, it would be the Permian Basin. Do we get to the point where production starts disappointing relative to the recount? We've not seen that yet. Growth may be slower than what it was you know, at the end of last decade, because the rig count's not skyrocketed and these kind of things. But as companies have added rigs, we've added supply. And when rigs have come off, supply has gone down. We've not seen a change in that relationship. Uh, the other element is GDP strength. We've been in kind of a lackluster global GDP environment, especially in the most important oil consumers, US, Europe, and China. Uh, so can we get back to an environment where GDP is strong and where the oil price doesn't matter as much? That's not the environment we're in. It's why we've called it super vol. We've got limited spare capacity. We generally have low inventories. We generally have limited capex. We preferred super vol, not super cycle. And it's been this grinded out kind of environment. And what we do wonder, and what we're going to ask today is, maybe that's actually the sweet spot. Maybe it's the Goldilocks for return on capital sustainability. And as you know, I'm a huge proponent that generating superior returns on capital is good for companies. It's good for the sector. and I do think if you avoid actually a super cycle, there may be a greater chance, at least for some companies, the top quartile companies, that they can sustain higher returns for a longer period of time. And that should mean a higher S&P weighting, outperformance, and these kind of things through all the trading ups and downs. And let, let me just get into to, to some of these slides. I think the first thing we'd highlight is that when people talk about inventories, when they talk about whether OPEC's cutting or not cutting and what it's going to do to inventories, that is an argument about what is going to happen at the front end of the curve. So we got four graphs here, WTI month one to two on the left, one to three on the right. These are months one to two, one to three, dollar per barrel on the top, percentage basis on the bottom. The, the bottom allows you to take into account the overall price level is why we look at it. But very simply, when inventories draw, when they go down, when they're low, spot price is higher than the back end of the curve. That's called backwardation. The opposite is true when inventories are high or building, spot price is below the back end, that's called contango. And 
when we talk about OPEC cutting, when we talk about whether inventories are going to draw in the second half of the year, it's all you're arguing. All you're arguing is, are you going to have backwardation or contango? And because the back end doesn't always move that much, it hasn't moved that much in the last several years. It didn't move that much in the 90s. People get fooled into thinking this is the be-all and end-all of oil analysis because they correlate this with the spot price, not the shape of the forward curve. It's a really important distinction. When you argue inventories, you're arguing the shape of the front end of the forward curve, and that is it. And let me illustrate this with the super spike era example of 2004 to 2007. So on the left is crude oil inventories. These are US crude oil inventories. On the right is various dates that the forward curve existed that corresponds with the graph on the left. So it's the same time period, 2004 to 2007. A couple observations. First, inventory is actually generally built over this period. Now, there were some draws along the way. And with those bills and with those draws, the front end evolved. So look at these lines, which again, start uh, early 2004 through late 2007. Uh, backwardation when inventories were drawing, a little bit of contango. Hopefully you can see my cursor, more of a contango. Steep contango here. What, what date was this? October of 2006, steep contango. And then we end 2007 with a slight backwardation. So front end, the inventories did drive, whether we were in backwardation or contango. Obviously, the real action here is at the long end of the curve. And I think the story is well known. China joined the WTO, emerging market demand surprised to the upside, kind of irrespective of the oil price. And at the same time, the oil fields we discovered in the 70s, all the debottlenecking and exploitation of that had run out. We needed a new greenfield cycle. We were trying deep water, Arctic, um, all sorts of crazy stuff, oil sands, et cetera. It turned out that US shale turned out to be the answer, which by the way, didn't exist over this entire period, and it drove back-end oil higher. That was the key to that super cycle, not trying to guess short-term inventories. And probably take a whole nother video to fully explain why the inventories didn't matter, uh, but uh, they didn't all about back-end oil. So let's kind of start where we are today. So let's look at Saudi Arabian production. This gets a lot of attention. Since 2004, and this goes to the current period, you can argue Saudi production capacity has grown from about nine and a half million barrels a day to a demonstrated 10 and a half million barrels a day, a whole 1 million barrels a day. Clearly it goes up and down. They raise production, they cut production, they create a lot of noise, they create a lot of headlines. And I'm not saying it's never relevant. It sometimes is, especially at the trough. I will give Saudi credit at the trough. They've usually reduced the period by which you've had a, a steep contango and inventories are full, so they've allowed people to not have to shut in production. Again, more of that's probably for another video, but they've added a million barrels a day. You do US production over the same period, it went from seven to 17. <laughs> we added 10 million barrels a day of supply in the United States at the same time Saudi added one. That is more relevant, it is obviously more relevant. Why do we spend so much time on this? I do not know. So the question really is, when do we again get to a point where you start seeing maturity in especially the non-OPEC supply? I mean, OPEC spare capacity is limited. I'll just call that factual. It's not actually a driver at this point of the oil markets. And I'm not showing this for the super spike era, but what you had was an, a phenomenon where those long tail low cost projects start to go away, the cost curve steepened, and we had the whole cycle. And you're starting to see that again. So the bear market, and th this is 
uh, my colleagues at Goldman Sachs. It's work I used to contribute to, so I feel totally comfortable still showing it, but I'll give Michele de Lavinia and the entire Goldman team a lot of credit for continuing to publish this. Um, 2009 to 2017, that's your shale revolution. The Kaos curve flattens. You had a whole bunch of resources. We're starting to see that go in the other direction. Again, I hope you can see my cursor. 2007 to 2022, you're starting to see maturity come in. You're starting to see the cost curve steepen. These are all signs that at some point we are probably going to need a new greenfield cycle. Now, there's the whole debate about what's the outlook for demand. Again, these are all for other videos. This video just can't go on for hours on end. So I'm going to keep it brief. But we're starting to see the cost curve steepen. What you haven't seen yet is non-OPEC supply disappointments, um, and, and especially and probably most specifically Permian Basin supply disappointment relative to rig count. I know there's a lot of good work done by a lot of people on IPs and ducks and maturity and infill and child wells, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We've had a higher rig count. We've had higher production. When the rig count's gone down, we've had lower production. That needs to start breaking in the direction of less supply relative to rig count. We've not seen that yet. I, I do think it's coming, but there's a big difference as to whether it's coming this year, next year, or five years from now. And I am a believer that Permian can probably grind it out itself for several more years. And again, this is probably worthy of a follow-up video, but I'm, I'm a little bit skeptical that the kind of maturity that we're seeing in non-OPEC, that we're on track for that to just suddenly translate into a much higher back end of the curve especially in an environment, and this is also critical, where global GDP is having issues, China, US, Europe, that is not a recipe for sort of, hey, all can keep going up kind of irrespective of, of um, what, what it means because there's underlying demand there. So it's, it's a mixture of both. And you're seeing that today. So the purple line is 60 months forward oil. And while it rallied from the COVID lows to kind of the June 2022 peaks, you can see it basically looks like it's still in the same range it was since 2015, which was kind of the heart of the shale revolution. So yes, shale has matured. Yes, the non-OPEC cost curve has steepened. Yes, that's all a sign of tightness to come. Yes, I think CapEx is low. Yes, I think we're going to new greenfield projects, but it, it's not translated yet. That's partly a demand question. Yes, I think the IA's net zero report is simply ridiculous and that we're not on track for that to happen anytime soon. But that also doesn't mean we're on track for 2 million barrels a day of sustained demand growth either. And if we're in kind of a one-ish, 750 to one-ish kind of millions of barrels a day of demand growth, and if the Permian can grow 300,000 barrels a day and you get some creep in Brazil and growth in Guyana and growth in Canada... And if you get some OPEC creep out of all the core five OPEC countries, even though the spare capacity is low, and you get some of these geopolitical countries kind of yin and yanging as to whether the production is off or on, that's the grinded out environment. It's the Super Bowl environment we're talking about. We need to see signs that, again, greater maturity in non-OPEC or better demand to really to, to then get to where the long end of the curve starts rallying. Now, I've shown this before, but I do want to dissuade the idea that a super cycle is automatically the best outcome, because it may not be. So from 2002 to 2006, higher prices, higher returns. What's really notable, and, and again, I, I know I've gone through this before, from 2006 to 2008, and then 2008 to 2014, oil either went up a bunch or simply stayed high and returns collapsed. What is good about that? Nothing. That is not what you want. 
avoiding the quadrilateral of death is absolutely the key question uh, that, or the key thing, where the key strategic thing we would want companies to avoid. And so far, so good. Now, we've not had a super cycle. We have had a super vol environment, but we're seeing returns doing a lot better relative to the regression line than last cycle. And I don't want to hear about write-offs. I don't, like, we use an as-reported basis, uh, and, and we can talk about the accounting of this. This is not about the accounting. This is about returns on capital relative to oil, doing better and staying better so far relative to history. So yes, oil itself is trading up and down a little bit, but returns have taken a step up here. Now for industry, I will question the sustainability because it's going to be a function of your inventory quality, your asset life, and so forth. But for the sector broadly, uh, for the sector broadly, I think... um, it's really these top quartile companies, excuse me, for the top quartile companies, I think the advantage returns is something that can continue. And the last point I'll make is when you look at returns, this is really the key to a higher S&P weighting. The market's essentially telling you today, it does not believe the improvement in returns. Uh, and, and so the S&P weighting remains 4 to 5% uh, versus something that could be double that based on where profitability is. And I I get the volatility is a hindrance. On the other hand, I think for, again, at least the top quartile, two quartiles of companies, can they demonstrate, can they at least demonstrate uh, that, uh, that they've got better returns uh, to, to, you know, and therefore deserve a higher S&P weighting? So I'll end this video on a personal note. I know many of you enjoyed the story I wrote about in last week's Super Spiked about Barry Henson, the Asia tour golfer who's a part-time Uber driver. Uh, who made the U.S. Open at a qualifying event in our club. My son was on his bag, and uh, you know it was really a very special story. I actually wanted to provide the, the sequel uh, and how things turned out. So my son had the pleasure of spending last week with, with Barry, two practice rounds Tuesday and Wednesday at LA Country Club, uh, and he joined him as part of his team, essentially. And then Barry had his own caddy on the bag for the round one and round two. He unfortunately did not make the cut. Uh, as best as we could tell, he was actually hitting the ball well, probably a few putts here and there. And then I think the last nine, uh, you know, it, it's a very challenging course. The conditions dried up and so forth. What I will say is, after a week of being out there, uh, Barry Henson is just a complete class act. Uh, he made my son part of the team. He made him feel welcome. It was more than just, hey, thanks, kid. You, you got me through a qualifying round and I appreciate it. Uh, he, he really went above and beyond the call of duty. It, this is his what he does for a living. He's not here to babysit, you know, college kids. Uh, he's not here. Uh, he, he's he's also not um, the highest profile golfer in the world. You know, he is not. You know, he doesn't have a Dustin Johnson live contract as an example. He took time to be a good human being, uh, and it is extremely appreciated that to know there are quality people in the world um, that will. Take care of your children. It, it, it's hard to express how much that means. Uh, Barry actually, after missing the cut on Friday, immediately flew out to make, uh, or excuse me, to participate in the Korea Open in South Korea this week. So I do hope people will tune in. It started Thursday. I think by the time this comes out, we'll know how he fared in the first two rounds of that. But I, I just want to say it was a great week at LA Country Club. I, I really want to applaud Barry's sort of the next shot that's the next shot I'm focused on. The next shot should be good. And here's a guy, again, that went out of his way to be simply a good human being. And as a parent, it's appreciated. Thank you, Barry. Thank you all.